Welcome back, everyone. I'm Cass Pianci, and I am here solo today because I'm just going to be quickly introducing part two of our discussion with Francis Coppola. In part two, we discuss algorithmic and over-collateralized stablecoins, and we also touch on the differences between current regulatory frameworks for stablecoins and more traditional financial regulatory frameworks. Hopefully you enjoy it. In the cryptocurrency world, they're, they're regarded as most stablecoins regarded as fairly safe. Tether in decentralized finance it requires more over collateralization, I think, than USDC does. And, you know, there is a bit of a hierarchy there, but none of them attract the kind of over collateralization that, that is recommended for them in the traditional finance world. You, you anticipated where I was about to go, which was the comparison between uh, these bank loans and the loans generated by like the MakerDAO protocol in the form of DAI and how the expected collateralization ratio for there for something like USDC is it's got a 0% haircut effectively because you can exchange it directly for DAI. And even an asset like Ether only has uh, it's 150% collateral right now, I think. So that's a 30% haircut. Vastly different than the way these assets are per perceived in traditional finance. It, you is can actually view it that these, well, it was back to what I was saying at the beginning, that in crypto, these assets are, required, are seen as safe assets. Whereas in traditional finance, they're seen as infinitely risky assets. We have a fundamental difference of opinion about what these things are and therefore how safe they are. Now, uh, you talked about these stable coins being more analogous to uh, casino chips because they're used mostly at these trading desks and these cryptocurrency exchanges to make these speculative bets effectively. However, all of these stable coins have at one point marketed themselves as being very useful for payments and remittances that would generally uh, look different from the casino. And Tether itself has been integrated into a couple of remittances programs, relatively small scale on the scale of remittances, but like with uh, Mallers, Lightning Network Strike, and USDC is now supposedly in some form or another going on the MasterCard payment rails. And so do you see the classification of stable coins changing as they try more and more to move into that kind of payments and remittances space? I think this is the other reason why regulators are getting interested is that they're moving into the payment space. If you think about the regulation that BIS was putting in place was very much about payments, about saying that people need to know that the things they're using to make payments are safe. And if they're not, then people need to be aware of what the risks are. Um, but really things that ordinary people are going to use for payments and remittances, particularly, I think, you know, these are people who are not rich. <laughs> these are people, you know, overseas workers sending money back to their families. It's not people who can afford to lose money they need to know that that the means they're using to transfer these this money is safe and so um that's i think why the regulators have been on at tether and usdc and the others to disclose the nature of their reserves and also the composition is actually people need to know that these things are safe and and i think you know if they're going to be used in payments then the standard is higher no, if if people are just using them to play on casinos, then you know, okay, so they might feel a bit let down if if the net asset value moves and and they don't get back um, quite what they expected. They can have that have that out with the exchange. But if it's just ordinary people just trying to make payments, they're not gambling. They're just trying to get their wages, whatever. People need to know that that's safe and stable. So I think the standard in payments needs to be much 
much higher. So if stable coins are going to be used in payments, they really are going to have to demonstrate that they've got the reserves to back them up. Given that point, and given the current actions that we're seeing from Janet Yellen and the Treasury, every regulator that I can imagine seems to, in one way or another, be beginning to approach cryptocurrency as an intensely risk-on asset class, and also to approach stablecoins as incredibly risk-on. So what would you expect? I hate to do this to a guest, and so I'm sorry in some sense, but what would you expect to see from regulators sometime in the future? Well, I keep coming back to the BIS because the BIS actually sets the benchmark for um, regulators in in individual countries. Individual countries can depart from that, but it tends to set, shall we say, the floor, the, the basic guidelines. And the BIS has come up with this discussion paper on the regulation of cryptocurrencies and stablecoins. Now, it's out for discussion. There will be comments back, obviously, but the important change that they established was this distinction between cryptocurrencies and stablecoins that they don't think are safe and can never be made safe and stablecoins and tokenized assets, which is the other class, that they thought could, but, and they had had a framework, the beginnings of a framework for regulating those type of stablecoins. The big problem was that they don't, those type of stablecoins, as far as I can see, don't exist right now. And that might be why USDC, which was marketing itself as a very safe stablecoin, as a it really is a dollar equivalent, um, has now disclosed its reserves and it's got some work to do, frankly. And I think that might be to do with understanding of what a traditional finance means by reserves. Um, and I'll come to that in a minute because, again, there was quite a bit of confusion around that. But also that it appeared to have opened the door to someone creating stable coins that actually met the reserve and disclosure requirements that they established. There's a whole opportunity there for someone. I think it's valuable to discuss the difference between like what banks mean when they say reserves and what stablecoin issuers mean when they say reserves and how that relates to like the liquidity of each of those entities. When banks talk about reserves, they're not talking about the whole of their balance sheets. And this, I need to talk a little bit about, about balance sheets and accounting. So on a typical balance sheet, you've got assets, you've got liabilities. Um, deposits for a bank are liabilities. Loans and securities, if they've bought them, are assets. And so are reserves. Reserves are for banks, for regulated banks, are there deposits at the central bank? Or if in some countries, um, regulated, small regulated banks don't have central bank account, accounts, but there'll be their, their deposits in larger regulated banks. So they'll be like, if you imagine your own demand deposit account, it's the bank's checking account, current account, demand deposit account at whatever the larger bank is. And the ultimate one is the, is the central bank right? It's the means by which they make payments. And all the payments they make go across that account, what we call a reserve account. In the case of banks that have accounts at a central bank, we call them their reserve accounts. And what's in the money they have in those deposit accounts at the central bank or the large bank are their reserves. So they're not the whole of their balance sheet. They are um, an amount of, of money, very, very liquid, that they use to make payments. That's what reserves are for. They make payments. Traditionally, 
Um, bank reserves have always been associated with lending. So we've had reserve requirements which were meant to restrict the amount of lending that banks could do. And the reason for that was that um, it used always used to be that every loan was fairly quickly followed by a payment and bank, banks had to have the reserves to make the payment. So you could kind of mix the two up. You could say loan, payment, yeah, I've got to have the reserves. In actual fact, these days, those two are pretty much separated. You might have a loan agreed, but it might not be settled for quite, it might not be drawn for quite some time. Um, some forms of loans are never drawn at all. If you're refinancing an existing loan, for example, it's never drawn. So um, it's a little complicated to link it with lending. So when I'm talking about banks, I always say it's about payment. Reserves are about payments. Banks have to have sufficient reserves to be able to to meet their payment obligations. If they don't have sufficient reserves, they've got to borrow them. They can borrow them from other banks or they can borrow them from the central bank. Since the financial crisis, um, we've slightly changed the way we do things because QE vastly increases the amount of reserves that bank hold, banks have that, that there are in the system. And banks collectively have to hold those reserves. But they don't necessarily individually want to hold them. So there's a bit of a marketplace goes on where they kind of try and <laughs> um, lend each other reserves or borrow reserves from each other. But one option that they have now is to hold liquidity, which they'll need for future payments going out, say, for 30 days or something in the form of other assets, of other safe assets, such as US Treasury bills. And it gives them a little bit more flexibility. So we talk about high quality liquid assets, of which reserves are one component but what it doesn't include is um, very risky assets. There's Again, it's worth actually looking at what the criteria are for high quality liquid assets. And they are quite narrow, really. Um, and also, they have got riskier assets in there. There are haircuts involved and it. It's quite a little bit complicated. Stable coins at the moment don't have that kind of regulation. One important thing, with the sole exception of Tether, actually, interestingly, none of them actually disclose the entire contents of their balance sheet. All they disclose is what they call reserves, which are the amount of liquid assets they say they have to cover the value of their tokens in issuance. What else they've got on their balance sheet, we don't know. In the case of Tether, we do, because Moore Cayman, who's Tether's um, accountant, takes a slightly different approach to attestations to all the other accountants, and actually does a consolidated balance sheet analysis, which for people like me, who are sort of balance sheet geeks, um, is rather good. It means I can look, I get a picture of Tether's whole balance sheet. I can see that tokens are most of their liabilities, but not all. And I can see that the assets they have on their balance, on the asset side, do more than cover their liabilities, but they're subject to credit risk and liquidity risk and market risk. And therefore, they're at risk of not being able to realize the money they need for redemption. Now, it's not just that they can't raise the money they need for redemption, but there's a second risk as well, which doesn't get talked about enough. We talk about it in relation to banks, and it was a huge issue after the financial crisis, and we appear to have forgotten about it completely, which is the risk of insolvency. When a bank becomes insolvent, so its assets fall in price sufficiently for its total assets to be less than its total liabilities, the value of its deposits, in effect, falls because it doesn't have enough assets to be able to pay off all its creditors. And depositors in a bank are creditors. And so the risk to 
depositors, when a bank becomes insolvent, when it, it when its assets become less than its liabilities, is that depositors will have to take a haircut. Now, the famous example of this is actually Cyprus, and it always gets cited by crypto people as an example of, of governments stealing people's deposits to bail themselves out. And I'm going, no, it's not. It is an example of two failing banks, two insolvent banks, and a country that had a deposit insurance fund that wasn't sufficient to meet the obligations and a government that couldn't borrow enough money on the financial markets to provide money to that insurance fund to enable it to meet the deposit requirement, okay? It couldn't raise the money to bail the banks out. Cyprus is a member of the euro, and I don't know if people realize this, but governments that are members of the euro don't issue their own currency, and, and they aren't able to print more. If they need more money, they have to go out into the markets and borrow it, and Cyprus couldn't do that. And so when these banks failed, and they failed because they'd loaded up on, on Greek sovereign debt, and Greece had debt restructuring in 2012, which coercively restructured all that debt, and these banks took an absolutely massive hit that made them insolvent. Also, these, these banks didn't have enough of an equity cushion, didn't have any debt that could be bailed in, had nothing. There was nothing there protecting depositors, and the government couldn't afford to bail them out, right? And so there was no choice but to take deposits, and it was only a question of which deposits. And the original proposal made at about three in the morning after a very, very long and intense discussion, um, which culminated in the ECB threatening to pull the plug on emergency liquidity to these banks, um, was that all deposits, inc including insured deposits, would take small haircuts. Um, but the Cyprus Bank, Cyprus um, Parliament refused to pass that legislation, sent them back, and then they changed it so that the insured deposits were, were honoured. But... Um, any deposits in excess of the insurance limit um, took quite a size for a haircut. It was not an example of a government stealing deposits. It was an example of a government not being able to afford to bail out a bank. And if I come back to stable coins now, and the thing that really disturbed me about looking at Tether was it was obvious that Tether has almost no equity. If its assets fall in value and it's got substantial credit risk in its assets, then there's nothing stopping its stablecoin holders taking the hit. The stablecoins will be worth less than a dollar. And that will apply whether or not they trade at a the dollar. They will be worth less than a dollar because there aren't sufficient assets to honour all the liabilities at that price. I, I hope this is making sense. And that's why regulators are talking about liquidity requirements for stable coins, but also about capital requirements. Because since the financial crisis and since the Eurozone crisis as well, when we also had a lot of banks failing on, on lack of capital and things like that, regulators have been putting in place regulations to ensure that banks have sufficient gap between their assets and liabilities to be able to absorb asset price movements. And they do stress tests to make sure that even quite major asset price movements like big property market crashes and things like that can be absorbed by these banks without them becoming insolvent, without insol depositors taking a hit and without banks having to stop lending. That was very helpful. And not only was it helpful, it recontextualized things I'd heard about the Cyprus bail-in, but hadn't fully understood until now. 
I actually wrote about it at the time. I, I covered it at the time um, because of the questions it raised about the nature of deposit insurance, that, you know, deposit insurance ultimately is only as good as the ability of a government to backstop it. If your government can't backstop it, if your deposit insurance fund runs out and your government is insolvent, <laughs> your deposit insurance may not, might not pay out. And, and that's an issue in itself in the traditional financial system. I think the only, the only um, government in the world for which this is not an issue at all is the United States. Is the United States. But everywhere else, they do have to think about these things. It is not impossible that a, gov a government might simply be able to un unable to honour deposits. And that is what happened in Cyprus. It also interestingly happening in Bulgaria in 2014 as well. So if it's that hard to run a fully reserved stablecoin and you can have those kind of issues, what about the newer subset of stablecoins that rely on partial collateral and a bit of algorithmic magic and governance token issuance to maintain their value? What's your opinion of, I'm talking of algorithmic stablecoins like the Iron Finance one that recently had some issues? Mm. Iron Finance, um, I looked at this in some detail because I thought it was a, a very interesting example, actually, of how, how hyperinflation happens, which we talked about right at the beginning. What happened there is actually quite a bad design error, which opened it to speculative attack. There was a good reason why somebody would attack irons pegged to the dollar. And that was that in the particular design they had, if they could manage to knock it below 75 cents to the dollar, they, they, they could claim free USDC, which if you remember, has up till now been marketed as a safe dollar equivalent. So essentially it was free money. And the, the way they did it was actually to attack the equity, the equity coin that is issued along with the stablecoin. The thing about that particular way an algorithmic stablecoin works is you have a part, you know, partial collateral, which in this case was USDC, and then the rest of it was um, collateralized with a floating token issued by the same issuer. And the idea being that there were incentives for people to mint or burn these things, um, and that would keep the stablecoin on its peg. The problem was that the actual mechanism didn't quite work that way, because if, 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 if somebody launched a sustained attack on the stablecoin peg, then not what they would be doing is minting more and more and more and more of the swing stable coins, <laughs> swing coins, the, the equity coins. So the equity coin becomes worthless and the stable coin still falls off its peg and that's essentially what happened. And I've seen other, co other coins with similar design where as far as I can see, there is no way out of this. They've got this idea that having some kind of floating collateralization ratio will, will fix it. And I'm going, well, no, actually, that just makes it easier <laughs> to, to attack. <laughs> um, I think the fundamental flaw in this is the idea that you can self-collateralize. I, I've always been a, sort of not a great believer in perpetual motion <laughs> machines, really. Um, and uh, and also, I think a more fun, uh, quite a fundamental question about the about the design, the way in which financial systems work. The, the game theory always assumes that people will, will act in a certain way that they will rationally maximize their, their profits and, and so forth by doing kind of what the uh, stablecoin issuers expect them to. But actually, too often, there are other possibilities, or other equilibria, which are risky. In this case, if they couldn't get it below 75 cents, they might lose a bit. But the gains were substantial, potential gains. So it was worth the attack. And the, uh, very often, the actual white paper, the actual kind of thinking behind this just doesn't even recognize that 
that kind of, of multiple equilibrium is even a possibility. And, and yet in financial systems, it's normal for financial equilibria to, to shift from a, a stable equilibrium to an unstable one. It's quite normal. It happens in financial markets. It's happened for millennia. There's no reason to assume that it would not happen in a stable coin environment. And, and, and so the idea that you can have an, an automated algorithmic stable coin where everybody will always act exactly how the designers think they would is kind of a bit grandiose, really. <laughs> All algorithmic stable coins really are capable of being attacked one way or another if you actually look at them. For an ecosystem that fear mongers about George Soros so often, it's amazing that so few people have read about the trade that made him his money. It's quite extraordinary. They don't think this could ever apply to them. You know, they know all about the failure of the US's peg to the Deutschmark in 1992, which is what that was. Do they even know that's what it was? Was that the, that the um, UK's pound was... Um, had a crawling peg to the Deutschmark, and it failed in 1992 under sustained speculative attack. If you've got any kind of hard peg, crawling or hard peg, crawling peg, whatever, you can make money. In the ca and in the case of stable coins, the real weakness here is thinking they've got a soft peg or a crawling peg or a floating collateralized ratio or, or anything like that, because actually they haven't. They've got a hard peg. They've always got a hard peg. And the reason for that is that they are guaranteeing the par value. And when, if you've got a hard peg, you have owed yourself to speculative attack because there's an obvious incentive always, one way or another, for somebody to come along and say, let's see if we can knock you off that peg. But the problem is mistaking a soft peg or a crawling peg or floating collateralization or anything else for thinking that makes any difference because that's not actually fundamentally what your hard peg is. Your hard peg is what you're going to redeem at. And what you're going to redeem at is always a dollar. It's a hard peg and a hard peg can always be attacked. On that note, is there anything else you'd like to add about, about this general discussion? Is there anything else you want us to hear, the audience to hear um well, the other thing I would say really is that, you know, it is it is a very exciting space and there's a lot of interesting things going on. It is Wild West. It's unsafe for a lot of people. And the one thing I would like to see regulators clamping down on, I was very encouraged to see the UK's Advertising Standards Authority appears to be intending to do this, is to clamp down on the mis-selling, on the marketing of cryptocurrencies and stablecoins as safe investments, as substitutes for insured bank accounts when they're not. Despite everything I said about deposit insurance earlier, and yes, at the limit in some countries, it's not as safe as you think. Even in Cyprus and Bulgaria, it did eventually pay out. And yet in, in stablecoin territory, there is no deposit insurance. These things cannot possibly be as safe as insured bank accounts. And that's why insured bank accounts don't pay very much in the way of interest is because it, they're safe. They're safe deposit boxes. You don't put, you don't expect to earn interest on safe deposits, do you? Whereas a stable coin is not a safe deposit box. And it bothers me hugely that they're marketed as safe assets. They pay no interest. There's no yield on them. And you've got to take risks. Not only are you taking risk actually buying the stable coin itself, but you've then got to take further risks in order to earn anything from them. And people need to know the extent of the risk they're taking. Francis, this has been a lovely discussion with you. Thank you for joining us. I personally have learned a lot from you just I, every single time that we speak. So I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, to teach us. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. It really has.